This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Time to put on the show. Maybe the Mariners play better when they're mad. Maybe this is a team that if you count them out, it shows you can't count. But for at least the third time this season, the Mariners have picked themselves up after what appeared to be a disastrous run of games. And they haven't just survived the storm. They've started to thrive. It's Danny and Gallant. It's Wednesday, August 4th. And the Seattle Mariners are one win away from sweeping the defending AL champs for the second straight series. And this one coming on the heels of... uh, Losing four out of five after a trade had rocked the clubhouse, Paul. They could go 7-0 and over the entirety of the year against the defending American League champs, a team that is vying for the best record in the American League, along with Boston and Houston and the Chicago White Sox. And it's really surprising, but maybe that they're able to bounce back from a week where things looked so low, you lose two or three to the Rangers, where you blow it at the end. You have this article in the Seattle Times highlighting real frustration about the Kendall Graveman trade. And then you see yesterday, 4-2 victory. Abraham Toro gets another home run. Jared Kelnick got a home run. You say Kikuchi looking pretty good on the hill. The bullpen getting things the done when it needed as to. Good as, as good as you could possibly hope for. That was, that was how you draw it up, right? Sadler comes in. Gives way to Seawald, and then you've got Castillo that comes in and closes the door. And I guess the tying run came to the plate in the ninth inning, but it really wasn't. There wasn't all that much drama in the way that that bullpen performed in a two-run game. There was a lot of hullabaloo over the last week about the Kendall Graveman trade, and I think that there are some that were overlooking that this team has shown resilience earlier in the year and that they were capable of getting over it. And Scott Service actually talked about it with Jake and Stacy and Shannon on the Scott Service Show yesterday. You know, people look at our, our clubhouse and, you know, players were upset, you know, with things that happened, you know, last week with the trade. And it didn't surprise me. We have a very close-knit group. It's family. And, and the guys are, you know, anytime you lose a family member or a guy gets traded, there's always going to be that reaction. But I will say that uh, how this group, uh, I mean, it's been a very resilient group. You know, we've seen it all year long. It's, like I said, they come back to, to, to work the next day. Uh, great attitude, getting the getting ready to play and beat an opponent and, and move forward. That's what you have to do, and that's what we have done. This has not exactly been a tame workplace, Danny, for the Mariners over the course of the year. Started with Kevin Mather's boom-roasted session on Zoom. Mm-hmm. Then you have all of the injuries that this team has suffered through over the course of the year. And then you have a trade of a guy who everyone really liked in the clubhouse, and yet this team has consistently found ways to get right back up, even after low points of the season where they lose to San Diego. There's one commonality. It's a guy who's not extended past this year. Scott Service deserves a lot of credit for what's been going on. A ton of credit. I think Gabe Kapler's the runaway manager of the year in the National League, given that that was a Giants team that nobody really knew what to expect out of, and they've, they're leading what is probably the best division in baseball. But the conversation for American League manager of the year, if it doesn't include Scott Service, somebody's, somebody's doing it wrong because the impact he's had, you've brought that up pretty consistently, Paul. Is it him? Is he the one that studied this? Because he's the cartilage, right? That's what we described him as last week. And that's, he is the, he's not management, but he is management. 
He's not the one making the decisions about who's in the clubhouse, but he's the face that is asked to interact with the clubhouse on behalf of the club. He, the manager has a really tough job because they are, they're kind of that, that middleman between they've got to be the, hey, it's up to us here in this clubhouse. And he's also part of the decision-making process about what they do going forward. The fact that he acknowledged it was difficult, said it wasn't surprising – Maybe maybe the reaction of the team didn't catch service in the front office off guard as much as we thought it did? That's definitely possible. And I would say that because of that, the clubhouse deserves credit too. I mean, maybe maybe there was a overassumption of how hard they were going to take it or that they could not be professional and get over it. And, and, you know, that's what I was saying for the last couple of days. You got to get over it. This is this is how it works in baseball. It stinks. You don't want to lose a teammate that you really like. But this happens every single year, and the Mariners are in this weird spot where, yeah, they're close, but they're not a World Series contender this year. And they are trying to address the long term, but they're also addressing the short term too. And I think now that they're seeing some of the results, especially from Abraham Toro, but Diego Castillo too, that it's maybe making it a little bit easier for them to move on. Certainly not that easy. I mean, we saw Kendall Graveman last night in a high-stakes situation for the Astros against the Dodgers, and he looked pretty good, but still, the clubhouse, they have weathered the storm, it seems, based off of the last two games, and service, I feel like, is is a huge part of it, as far as just keeping these guys of right mind. What does a good manager do? What is the trait of a good manager? Because I think for a long time, people have thought they play hunches, they, they know when to push the right buttons. Those I think the modern vision is uh, of what a good manager is is much more educated. They have a system that's in place, right? They allow players to know when they're going to get their opportunities. And they're in charge of explaining that to guys who aren't happy with the opportunities or the number of chances that they're getting. The other function that the manager plays is they're kind of a buffer. They're a buffer. Joe Torre probably did this better than anyone. Joe Torre was an incredible manager, not because of the decisions he made in-game, but because of how he handled the press and kept that press from bearing down on his clubhouse. Scott Service doesn't have the same kind of press to deal with. I think what Scott Service does so well is he serves as a buffer, and he serves as, as the person who keeps the players focused on what they can control rather than the big-picture decisions that are being made about the shape of the roster by the front office. Usually the manager is having to insulate his clubhouse from from voices outside the organization. In Service's case, he's the person that kind of has to insulate his clubhouse from the the long-term decision making that the that the the front office is making as they conduct this rebuild. He's also been a bit of a hype man too. You know, he is saying some of the things that maybe Joe Torre was saying, let's go to yesterday again on the Scott Service Show on Jake and Stacy, where Service talked about what the lineup the Mariners had on Monday's game against the Rays looked like. As I wrote up the lineup card for yesterday's game, I thought, wow, this is the deepest lineup we've had at any point this season. That's how I certainly felt. Is, you know, even at the bottom of the lineup, you know, that Kelnick and Raleigh have gotten some big hits and got some things going for us, and it's you, know, you saw it in last night's game. You know, we really didn't get a whole lot going in the first inning. You look up in the second inning, and we are grinding at bats, and now all of a sudden the lineup flips over to the top of the lineup, and we put together a big inning. That happens because you got depth throughout your lineup. Do you buy that? That, that I, was the I, deepest that, lineup thus far this year? Well, okay. 
It's the deepest lineup, but that's not really saying much. This is a team that had a chunk of its players hitting below 220. There's, I, I agree with what he's saying. There's a part of me that feels like that's a little bit of an overreaction, and maybe he is being the hype man who that's is trying to— That's what you have to, to be. Yeah, that's, that's sort of I the guess, way I'm looking at it. I, I, I guess that put a sales job, because there's— Toro's been a great addition so far, and he's performed really well. Is he going to keep this up the rest of the season? No, he's not. Probably not. I don't know if they have. I don't know if they have the firepower to be able to really make a run at this playoff berth. But maybe they do, and maybe they are better than I think, and they are going to. But when I heard that, I was like, "That sounds nice." And I do think the team is better than it was a week ago, provided they're able to get beyond sort of the emotional whiplash of trading Graveman. But I was like, "Let's not get too carried away just yet." But someone needs to make them get carried away because that's the kind of thing that psychologically I think is a big wind in your sails going forward. You need to have somebody telling you, "Look, this lineup's better." You know, you lost Kendall Graveman. It stinks. But this lineup's better, and this bullpen has a new arm, and you got a fifth starter now. You actually are better situated. Maybe, yeah, you didn't go get the, the, the sexy big name. And that's a bummer for some t- guys who maybe aren't going to be here this coming uh, season, 2022. But this is a good team, and sometimes you need to be reminded of that after you have a rough stretch. If you're a Mariners fan right now, do you care about how you mentioned some of the guys that might not be here? And those were probably the guys that are most bummed about them not making a push. Do you care about how they feel? And, and, I, and Because there's a very valid reason to say, yes, I do. I care about how Kyle Seeger feels. I care about Kyle Seeger's feelings about this team after the 10 years he's put in here. And, and he earned or deserved a, 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 better, a better opportunity at making a playoff run if this is, in fact, going to be his last year. I could also see one saying, no, I'm a Mariners fan, and I want what's best for the franchise. And it seems like this front office and this manager are really building this franchise in a way that it is best for the long-term future. And it's not about saving their jobs. And it's not about getting one wild-card playoff berth. It's about doing what they said and putting this team in position to win championships. At the same time, though, they are probably hinting that it is close. And it's good to have somebody that is in a situation where he might be dictated by management as far as what he's supposed to do, but he is still going to be able to relate with those guys around him in a way that kind of makes him seem separate, that makes it seem like he's in their corner. And I think service has done that a couple of times this year. From the 701, hey, Danny and Paul, you must continually prune your apple tree if you want to continually Ah. produce high-quality fruit. Just saying. I think this person might be insinuating that I need to be pruned. So our tree will continue to produce. Well, your sea cucumber fruit. mustache is gone. Was that? It burning? is gone. It is gone. Yes, that's correct. the the <laughs> the wife's The wife's preferences won out over my my uh, rowdy niece and nephew. It's Danny and Gone. A fresh, a freshly shorn Danny <laughs> O'Neill here. It's time for us to get to front page news. This this is the front page. Today's top two stories and why they matter. Every morning at seven ten. Get what you need to know to start your day right now. I love it whenever you say freshly shorn. Freshly shorn. I need to watch an Austin Powers movie again. It's really quite breathtaking. (laughs) Meat helmets. Before we get into how things look for the Mariners after yet another win over the Tampa Bay Rays as they try to get back in that playoff race, they're hanging around. Last night's Astros-Dodgers game, a 2017 World Series rematch, was a sight to behold. And if you are just waking up, do yourself a favor 
and just look at how hostile that crowd was. Easily the most hostile reception that the Astros have gotten thus far. But it also turned to Dodger on Dodger fan crime. First, Dodger fans were throwing home run balls on the field at the Astros in batting practice. A ball was thrown on the field in the third inning. Astros foul balls were getting tossed back on the field, too. Inflatable trash cans, which exist, were thrown on the field. And as the game wore on, food and drink were being thrown everywhere. We had Dodgers fans going after the very few people who were crazy. you got to be crazy to go to Dodger Stadium wearing another person's uniform, wearing Astros gear in attendance. And then you had Dodgers fans going after Dodgers fans. I haven't seen fan behavior quite like this in quite some time because it felt like it was all over the ballpark. Not going to lie, from a playoff atmosphere kind of setting, certainly lived up to the hype. Did not help out the Dodgers, though. They lost 3-0. Legitimately weird to see Dodger fans care that much. L.A. is a weird sports market. And it's not... I'm not going to go so far as to say it's a bad sports market because those guys are dedicated to their Lakers. Like, it really is... But it's, it's weird. It's unlike any other sports market in the country. And Dodger fans are typically, they're good fans, but they're really laid back. It's hard to get them to show up before the third inning starts. Yeah. And they were there before it started throwing tra- And then I see Dodger fans fighting with security. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a line of security dudes, and Dodger fans are fighting with them. I was like, good Lord. Good Lord. Something. It takes a lot to make Dodger fans care that much. I went to one Dodger game before. And I remember that there were a group of fans who were not from Pittsburgh, but who were wearing Pittsburgh Pirates uniforms. They were uh, the Cali Pirates. And these uh, Yinzers, one of which had a giant P uh, tattooed on the back of his head, were uh, speaking to each other in sign language a lot. Gang sign. The front page. A little sketchy. Security told them to stop, and they looked like they were going to give security a wedgie. I feel bad for anyone who's in security at a ballpark when it's that hostile. That's going to be really tough to do. It's not a draft, man. You sign up for that. That is a volunteer job. <laughs> there are easier ways to make a living. I'm just saying. I will unvolunteer. <laughs> the Yankees, who the Mariners travel after facing the the Rays in the series finale today, uh, the Yankees have some bad news. Garrett Cole, uh, their their big free agent acquisition a year and a half ago, uh, he has. COVID. He's on the cooties list. <laughs> so is Jordan Montgomery, another starter. So Cole was supposed to start Sunday against the Mariners. He missed yesterday's start. Montgomery was going to start Friday. They don't know who's going to pitch in place of him. They're both on the 10-day injured list. I, It's possible they can get off of that, but they will have to test negative for COVID-19 twice. Also, Gio Urshela, their third baseman, has a strained hamstring. So the Yankees going to be limping into that four-game series when the Mariners come to town beginning with Thursday's game. Yeah, that's pretty advantageous as far as any opportunity that you can have against that New York team. They are dealing with a lot of pitching injuries as it is already. And, I mean, you know, like Luis Severino and uh, among others. So this is... This is an opportunity for the Mariners coming into this weekend. And, you know, you take a look at the wild card standings. Maybe they'll be able to make some ground up, not just on the Yankees, but also potentially on Toronto, too, before they play them in just a couple of weeks as well. That is front page news. Now we got the professor. Let's buckle up for our morning drive. 
John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny and Gallant. It's a four-way battle, and there's only going to be three spots. Somebody has to go. The first and final word on everything, everything. NFL, NFL from the professor John Clayton. John Clayton. They scored 30 points a game. They're the best running team in football. It's John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny and Gallant. Professor, yesterday the Seahawks offense continuing to work on that short game. I really was impressed by some of the connections between Russell Wilson and Tyler Lockett in the short range. But what, what have you been seeing out there at Seahawks training camp? Well, I just like the uh, the pace of the offense because I think you can see it's a faster pace. I think you can see that the outside zone runs look a lot quicker. I think you can see that Russell Wilson's getting rid of the ball quicker. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're you're looking at is an upscale offense, which is what uh, a lot of teams in the league are starting to copy right now. Because I mean, you're seeing the Rams, you're seeing the 49ers, and I think you're seeing a good offense. And I think you know the speed that this team has, both at running back and also in uh, with the receiving core, works so well, and also a tight end. So I think that uh, it looks like a real good fit. And of course, uh, you know, you work in the short game, and of all. Ultimately, what you saw, particularly with the Rams, is it opens up the long passing game. So I I think this thing is working out right now. Shane Waldron seems to be doing a great job coaching this offense, teaching this offense. And you can see that Russell Wilson's all in. John, who do you think stands to benefit most from this new offense? Is it a tight end like Gerald Everett? Will Disley, is it a receiver like Freddie Swain, especially with Dwayne Eskridge banged up and he hasn't started practicing yet because of that toe? Who do you think's production could really see a boost? Well, I think it could be Penny Ford because uh, Penny Ford seems to be right now I think one of the leading candidates for the third receiver spot because, again, you know, D. Estridge still isn't on the field yet. And, you know, Freddie Swain can get more opportunities to go. We'll still see if they add a receiver beforehand. But I think that, uh, you know, he, the, uh, Penny Hart has a chance to do some good things. I mean, the one thing is there will be more two tight end sets. The question is going to be how much of the passes are going to go to the tight ends. Because remember, you saw last year and you also saw in Tampa Bay, when you have a great wide receiver duo like DK uh, Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, that uh, it's sometimes harder to get the balls to the tight ends. I mean, there'll be more passes to the tight ends this year for sure. And so, but again, you know, of the three uh, tight ends, uh, we'll see you know who's going to get more of the passes. We talked a lot about thumbs yesterday. So Matt Stafford's right thumb x-rays were negative, and I guess he was back at practice uh, yesterday. But the San Francisco's quarterback situation still interesting. Trey Lance got a single first-team rep, but it was a designed run specifically for Lance and yet we're still hearing all of the glowy quotes about him. He's been tremendous and is bringing out the best of Jimmy G. Man, I really wonder how this is going to play out over the course of this season. And I know that you've been of the mindset that it could happen sooner rather than later where Trey Lance could come in. Yeah, but again, I think that uh, they're going to go into the season without question with Jimmy Garoppolo as a starting quarterback. Right. And right now, uh, Kyle Shanahan is giving him great reviews. In fact, I think just, what, Monday or so, he said this is the best he's seen of Jimmy G. And, uh, you know, again, they're not going to rush Trey Lance, but I think you can also see that Trey Lance is talented enough that he's picking up the offense so well and doing such good things. There may be sooner than later. But, uh, again, sooner is not going to be September or October. But at some point, I think that uh, he's going to be challenging to get on the field. And, again, who knows if Jimmy G is going to get hurt. Remember, this is a quarterback who was uh, with the 49ers for 48 regular season games, and he's missed 23 because of injury. I'll tell you what, John. I saw a clip from their practice yesterday. Uh, the 49ers uploaded it. Uh, he's... 
taken a step backward and he fired the ball 50 yards downfield and it looked effortless. Like it was really one of those throws that makes you sit up and take notice. And I know there goes it's there was there's more that goes into Kyle Shanahan's offense than just than just throwing, but Shanahan was there with Washington when Robert Griffin III had such a great opening year. So he's got he's got some examples of working with quarterbacks who maybe don't fit what we think of as the as the Shanahan style quarterback, somebody like Matt Ryan. I'm I'm really curious and kind of a little bit. I mean, from the Seahawks perspective, the, how that relationship goes and how Lance looks like when he plays is going to determine a lot about the shape of this division for years to come. Yeah, but you got to remember uh, when he was in Washington, he was the offensive coordinator, and Daniel Snyder was the one who worked it's the true. trade out trade out to get RG three. And you know, Daniel Snyder controls things there. And so it's like uh, it wasn't any option to go to another quarterback. I mean, it was going to be RG3. And now Cal goes out to San Francisco and say what you want about the power of John Lynch. I mean, it's a Cal Shanahan team. Cal gets what he wants. And one of the things that Cal said toward the end of last year is that uh, he likes the uh, idea that Andy Reid has. If you have a good rookie quarterback who's a first-round pick, it's a good idea to let him learn the first year as opposed to play him the first year. Professor, as the show progressed yesterday, we found out that another Colts injury took place. It's not just Carson Wentz dealing with a foot injury. It's also guard Quentin Nelson, arguably the best guard in football. Man, Indianapolis, they, they just had some bad luck this year. Yeah, it's even worse because when you also look at the idea that, you know, here's Carson Wentz out 5 to 12 weeks with foot surgery. Quentin Nelson had his foot surgery yesterday, so he's out 5 to 12 weeks. And then there's questions right now about their left tackle, Eric Fisher, you know, coming off the Achilles in the NFC Championship game. There's thoughts now he may have to miss the first month. So now if you're talking about the left side of your offensive line, your quarterback, Jacob Eason starting a quarterback. Uh, I think you're looking at a team right now that's in deep trouble. And to make matters worse, look at their starting schedule. I mean, they have mm-hmm. five games against teams, 10 wins or more. You know, they open against Seattle. They go against the Rams. They go against Tennessee. They go against Baltimore. And uh, they go against Miami. So those five wow. games, I mean, they could very well start off 0-5. Our training camp coverage presented by Precore Home Fitness. The professor, John Clayton, is with us each and every day right here at 715 for your morning drive. John, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Okay, sounds good. That is the professor. The Seahawks haven't changed all that much, have they? Or is the country just not paying attention? We'll look into that next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Right up there with my favorite song about changes by David Bowie. A little Tupac in the mix. I like that. Good job, DJ. Nice pull there. Is it Tupac or is it Bruce Hornsby? Bruce Hornsby in the range. That's just the way it is, is Bruce Hornsby in the range. I believe that's the sample from that, isn't it? Is. It is, yes. But, the, you know, that song's but not about Pac? changes. You're giving it to Pac? Well, the Bruce Hornsby in the range song is about how things aren't changing, right? <laughs> it's it's just right? the way it is. I think so. Yeah, it's just the way it is. Everything's terrible. Okay, uh, so let's shift into the actual topic we were going to dive into. We have seen some changes made by the Seahawks this offseason. I was surprised by, though, an ESPN article that weighed the changes made amongst NFL teams based off of free agent signings, 
trade acquisitions, draft selections, long-term injury returns, retirements, returns from the 2020 COVID list, and also just long-term injuries. And the Jaguars ranked number one. That makes sense. I mean, they're bringing Trevor Lawrence. You, you know, there's all sorts of different things happening in Jacksonville this year. I was surprised to see Seattle at number 28 among all 32 teams as far as net change from the end of last season to now. And the writer for this piece wanted to make it clear that this is not about whether or not a team is really good or really bad. This is just who changed the most. I, I was surprised. I mean, there have been some changes, right? This team is different than the one that we saw at the end of the 2020 season. Significantly. You've added Gabe Jackson. You've added and changed a strong side linebacker. You're going to have a pretty revamp. The biggest change on this team is your your secondary, right? Cornerback, right. DJ Reed's your longest tenured star. I mean, he's the established starter, and he's been in that position for less than a year. You've got a new starter on the other side, which may be Akella Witherspoon or maybe the guy we're going to talk to in about 15 minutes when Trey Brown joins us. No Shaquille Griffin. Jamal Adams is going to be there for a second season, but really his first full year where mm-hmm. he's had an entire offseason to get ready, and he should be healthy, which he really wasn't healthy at any point last season. I, I think they've I think they've gone through They changed an offensive court. They've gone through a fair amount of change. A smorgasbord of new defensive linemen as well. We'll see who ends up factoring in. I know I was focusing a lot on Alden Smith yesterday. Saw some glimpses of what he used to be. Uh, also, Kerry Hyder now in the mix, too. Really liked what I saw from Gabe Jackson, by the way, yesterday as well. So you add a couple of different names into the mix, and yeah, I think it is somewhat different. To be 28th, to me, that's almost as if the national media is looking and saying, well, they're just rolling things back. And that's not quite the case. I I, I guess I'm trying to figure out what maybe truths there might be in this piece where they are putting them at 28th, because... There definitely hasn't been an addition of some sort of high-profile player. You know, there's no, let's just take a look at what Kansas City did, where, where Kansas City, they bring in Joe Tooney, and, and they totally revamped their offensive line after some struggles at the end of the year. Or New England, who obviously went on that massive spending spree of theirs this offseason. New England is. Are we, are we sure Seattle had less change than the Chiefs? The Chiefs released their two tackles, right? neither of whom played in the Super Bowl. And yeah, they signed Tooney. Seattle traded for Gabe Jackson. I mean, that's a... They traded for Orlando is, is, Brown, too, in, in, in Kansas City. So, But it's, but it's is, all in one to, spot. You're right. It's like sort of centralized on the offensive line for KC. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure they've changed more. I'm not sure that Kansas City... And they've got the same offense in place. I would actually say that Seattle has will look more different on offense than, than the Chiefs will. They're just going to have a couple of different widgets along their offensive line. How much do they need to change? I mean, that is something that we're definitely going to see, I would imagine, some changes on offense. But I, I don't know that they're necessarily going to say, all right, toodaloo to what they've been doing entirely you know we we've heard Pete Carroll talk about wanting to run the football more effectively some have took that as oh goodness gracious they're never going to throw again and how they establish balance it's unclear because you know last week Pete said it's not a number but in December he said there was a number that they try to get to as far as combined passes and runs what is that like the rule of 53 yeah it's it that's a misleading number because usually you get to that number because you've controlled the ball. And if you've controlled the ball, usually you win. It's not that you win because you get to that number. It's that you get to that number because you've controlled the ball long enough right. to win. 
I thought Pete provided the best explanation that he ever has of his focus on the run game. It just wasn't a sexy headline. His explanation was, I want to be able to run the ball because you need to be able to run the ball, especially at times later in the season. And if you don't work at running the ball, you're not going to be able to run the ball when you need it. That he's not about, hey, we've got to establish, he's comfortable. He wants to have a ground game that you can rely upon. And he's comfortable having close games, but more than anything, what he wants is if you've got a game where the passing game, for whatever reason, isn't working, and that could be the weather, it could be your quarterback, or it could be the pressure that your quarterback's facing. Any one of those things can happen. He wants to be able to run the ball. I think that's primarily the reason that Brian Schottenheimer was out. Because he was not happy with the way they ran the ball when teams started hanging their second safety back. He was like, we should be destroying these dudes on the ground. And we're not. We should, when, when teams do this to us, we need to sit there and sock them in the stomach until they bring that other safety back up. And that opens the back door again. One of the biggest things in their favor this year, and we, we touched on it briefly yesterday, is that they were able to sign Chris Carson to such a reasonable deal. And that's a result of what you were talking about. At the end of the year where they struggled to run the football, they couldn't really give Chris Carson the rock the way that they wanted to. And you take a look at the end of the season, Carson's statistics are pretty unimpressive. Even though he was, when used, very, very good, they couldn't find a way to make him the guy that we saw 2019 and 20, uh, you know, 18 when, when he was out there as well. And they have to use that guy more. You know, I love that they have him at this reasonable deal, but they actually have to use him. They didn't use him enough last season, I felt like, and that might have been because they were just unable to run things. Does that include throws out of the backfield? Yeah. It's, it's, it's about time for the annual rite of passage, Paul. I tell you, it happens every year. Mm-hmm. We start talking about the screen game. It's a training camp rite of passage. You've seen this it. Year, the year Seattle's going to get its screen. They had a couple really nice screen passes last year. Yeah, kind of whetted the appetite. It kind of evaporated, though, right? Yeah, like did. We didn't see that much later the in the Falcons year. The Falcons game was beautiful because you saw it, and they were doing it to perfection. But, yeah, they stopped rolling with it. Carson's got good hands. Chris Carson has good hands. and I mean, one of the reasons I think you brought in Rashad Penny, too, is because you think that he has pretty good hands as well. Yeah, maybe that's something that they do a little bit more of. You know, when the Rams' offense was at its best, it wasn't just because Todd Gurley was running so effectively. Gurley was a really capable receiver, and his versatility, I think, made it difficult for a defense for a defense to key in on what he might do on a down-to-down basis. And I, I think Carson has that same kind of versatility. Hopefully, I think he does have the ability to. Yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing getting him him more involved. That would be a change that we would like to see. It's Danny and Gallant, 710 ESPN Seattle. Our training camp coverage is presented by Precore Home Fitness. Coming up next, the Seahawks added to their defensive back group this offseason, not just Akella Witherspoon. They drafted a guy who made game-clinching plays in three consecutive Big 12 championships. Trey Brown, the Seahawks' fourth-round pick, joins us next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Our coverage of training camp continues. We're going to be catching up with Seahawks rookie Trey Brown here in just a second. And of all the changes that we just talked about on Seattle's roster, Trey Brown's part of the group that has changed the most and also kind of the player type that's changed the most. We've seen the Seattle Seahawks look for specifically tall, angular cornerbacks. That's changed recently. And maybe that's a recognition of how opposing offenses are constructed and what they try to do in spreading the field. It's also probably 
a sign of increased competition, that those tall corners that they were one of the only teams that were looking for, well, now there's a whole lot of people that are coveting that sort of size and length among their corners. So what's the market correction? The market correction should be finding explosive, fast, twitchy guys that maybe have an attitude about them where they're playing bigger than their actual size. And you have that in DJ Reed, and I'm sure that DJ Reed gave the Seahawks some confidence in the fourth round to go after someone like Trey Brown. And and something of note about Trey, which I thought was great to hear, and it came from John Schneider after his uh, second and third round uh, post-draft press conference, where he said that he felt that Trey Brown was top 10 talent, but because of his size that he was able to slide in the draft to the Seahawks. And that has me really excited about him, in addition to the big plays that he made in three straight Big 12 championship games. Well, we've got him with us now. Trey Brown is joining us. And Trey, this is a little belated. It's a little belated. We're grateful to have you here on Danny and Gallant, but but welcome to Seattle. We're really excited to have you in town. Glad to be here. (laughs) What's training camp like? Man, it's it's totally different than what I thought. You know, it's not like college, (laughs) you know, where you're here till like 12 a.m., you know, and got to wake up at 6 the next day. These guys really take care of you, but... Man, it's really fun. You know, you got the uh, fans out here cheering you on, and that that just motivates you even more. And uh, man, it's just this is it's a dream. I can imagine too that seeing lined up against you from time to time wide receivers like DK Metcalf, who is a behemoth, and also Tyler Lockett has to be a pretty different experience for you as well. Though the Big Twelve does have a lot of offense. Yeah, of course. You know, uh, I've seen I've seen receivers, you know, so I don't really get spooked, you know, when it's time to, you know, go against guys who have pretty big names because I've been doing that my whole life. So it's just it's just more motivation and just makes me better. That's exactly the kind of attitude that we want to hear. We want to hear about cornerbacks who've got a chip on their shoulder, who look at some guy and they're like, yeah, this guy can't get past me. And then they're going to be able to get in their face and push him around and stuff. So that's good, Trey. We're glad to hear that. Yes, sir. Trey, when you were kind of coming up as a high schooler and I guess probably even even some when you were in college what what did you think about when you looked at at Seattle's defense and the way they played uh you know with this when I was in high school this is when uh they were the legion of boom right yeah correct yeah yep. man I was just like wow man these these guys I mean they're the standard of the NFL right now you know uh when you talk about defense or something like that you always picture the Seattle uh Seahawks defense and uh that comes to mind when you got Good safeties, good corners, and they're all like just a group. And that's just to one, and they made a name for themselves, being in magazines, all this other stuff. So, man, it was just like, yo, they're very popular. And that was, that was something I wanted to be a part of, definitely. Did you see any similarities in what you hoped your game would be like? Did you, maybe it's even beyond just the, the Seattle's defensive backs. Were there people that you looked to to model your game after? Uh, we're talking about with the Seahawks or no? What either one? Like, who did you look at? Who did you look at and say that's the kind of that's the kind of corner that I want to be? That's the kind of defensive back I want to be. Uh, Charles Woodson, you know, yeah. uh, play with he 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 played with uh, speed. He was physical and he just he just made plays at the right time. You know, uh, that's something I've done in my career is made plays at the right time when it was time to make those plays. And uh, man, it's just always adding more to your game. You know. Yeah. To that point, I mean, some of my friends. I, so. Trey, I, I, I lived in Texas recently, and some of my best friends are Texas fans. So they're probably going to be mad that I'm talking to you here. But, yeah, you had the big play in the 2018 championship game. You sacked Sam Ellinger. In 2019, you tracked a dude down who looked like he was going to score a 95-yard touchdown on Baylor. And also, 
you had the interception of Brock Purdy in the most recent uh, Big 12 championship game. So th- that's oh, you missed one. You missed one. Don't I missed forget one. about the Texas game. <laughs> the interception. There we go. <laughs> See, big time players make big time plays in big time moments. So that's that's great to hear that you have the confidence to do that. And shoot, I'm even forgetting some of them. <laughs> so I can imagine that. Yeah, going to the NFL obviously had a bit of an adjustment period, but this is something that you are feeling like you are very very much able to make. Oh, definitely. You know, uh, right now I'm just, you know, just getting my feet wet, learning, learning a lot about the uh, the different changes of the NFL and how they do things. But uh, I'm sure definitely when I have this down packed, it's, it's, I'm going to definitely make a name for myself in this league. And I'm going to be now, around for a while. Now, Trey, I'm not trying to get you in trouble here because the Big 12 has no jurisdiction over you anymore. <laughs> but did you have you seen the rule that was passed where if you if, if you put horns down? If you hang the horns down, which I've understood that Oklahoma players can do from time to time, uh, that if you do that with in front of a Texas player, they're going to start flagging people. Yeah, I definitely heard about that. But uh, I remember when they came out with this rule, what twenty eighteen? I did it yeah. right after the game, so <laughs> <laughs> I, we're, I, we're not worried about that at all. <laughs> uh, on the outside looking in, are you bummed out to see Oklahoma leaving the Big Twelve? I'm actually, uh, yeah, I'm actually pretty excited that they're going to, to the SEC. You know, uh, you hear a lot of talk about the SEC and then how we've been pretty much running the Big 12 and they're saying yeah. we can't do it over there. So uh, it's a new challenge and we're welcoming that. Trey, your height, I'm assuming, as has been a subject of conversation that you heard a lot in the lead up to the draft. How did you take that criticism or the, the speculation that people have where it's, hey, if he's a couple inches taller, he's a higher draft pick? Was that, was that something that, that made you mad? Was it something you took as a challenge? No, it was something I definitely took as a challenge. You know, every day I faced that. And uh, so every day I went against a receiver, uh, every Saturday I went against a receiver or whatever, they had to pay for that. You know, and uh, you see that and you're like, wow, you when you watch that tape after the game, you're going against a six foot uh, six foot three receiver versus a five nine five ten corner. You should be pretty embarrassed, you know, because I I locked you up that day. So I mean, like, check the tape. You know, uh, my height doesn't matter. You know, it's a chip on my shoulder. Is that something people overestimate the impact of height <laughs> on a DB? I think they definitely do. You know, uh, I feel like to to a DB, you know, they have a DB my size and. Your quickness, you have more of an advantage because with those guys, you can line them up inside, you can line them up outside. And if they have, the, you know, the the competitive willingness to uh, make those plays, and, uh, you, you you pretty much have a winner. <laughs> I, I should should have clarified, too. You're talking, I'm a short dude. In, in <laughs> fact, I still, I still hold a grudge against my freshman PE teacher because the end of my freshman year, she listed my height as 4'11 and a half. Oh, um, wow. 15 years old. She put me down as four eleven and a half. She wouldn't give me the half inch tray. I think. I think maybe like you can you you could sympathize with how infuriating that would be. Definitely, I, I would have asked for that inch back. You know. Oh, I saying? did. I asked. If she wasn't giving it to me. <laughs> nah, but yeah, it's definitely you know a chip on my shoulder. You know, and um, I felt like regardless of my height, I was the best. I was the best corner in uh, college football with the stats. You know what I'm saying? That everybody look at heights, but I, I look at the stats and the senior stuff that I've done and. You can't really take that away. Every defensive back loves to get an interception. But as a cornerback, would you rather have an interception or have a quarterback so scared to throw your way for the entirety of a game where the guy you're locked up against has zero targets? Mm, that's the, that's, that is a great question. Um, but I, I, I'd say uh, I, I love an interception. You know, uh, that, that's what makes you the money right there is the interception. That's what's going to get you to the Pro Bowl. Have you had any pick sixes? 
I, I haven't. There, uh, there was like two that I dropped that was definitely going to be pick oh. sixes. I think that's why I dropped them because my eyes were so big. <laughs> it's in the end zone. How about sacks? How does a sack relate to an interception? Are they similar thrills? Is it is it better for a DB to get it? Because sacks are tend to be rare, and they can be valuable. A guy, teammate Jamal Adams has shown how important they can be. Sack versus an interception. It uh, it all it's, it all depends on the situation. I mm-hmm. feel like you know, uh, but an interception always changes the game, and that's something that's that you know what I'm saying. You're going to be remembered for in that game. You know, a sack you can get a sack second down, third down, and they go back and get a touchdown. But an interception changes the whole game. Couple quick more questions. Have you gotten used to Seattle, and specifically, I'll ask with the seafood because we serve our seafood a little bit different in Seattle. There's not as much seasoning on it. Have you gotten a chance to eat any salmon yet? Ah, the salmon is pretty good. The salmon is really good, but you said there's not enough season. There was yeah, we, we don't put seasoning on. We just do salt and pepper. We don't, we don't, we don't season it like they do in other parts of the country. Maybe, maybe that's why I had. Ah, I want to say this, but maybe that's why I had. I, I had a bad experience when I went. There. Oh no! Oh, no, what happened? Yeah. It was just, it was different. Like you said, I don't put season, and I was expecting season. So I was like, yeah. wow, this is, this is different. Yeah, we just go salt and pepper. Give it another shot. It might grow on you, or maybe you can ask him to put some blackening on it and, 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 and season it up proper. Uh, the, the other thing, have you been to the Space Needle yet? Have you gone up and gotten a bird's eye view? Have it. It took me two years to get there, Trey. I legitimately just went on Friday. So d- no rush. No rush. It's pretty yeah, cool, with- though. With the NFL expanding the uh, the season to eighteen weeks, uh, I might it might take me a year to get there. It's true too. That's true. You you got time. We're looking forward to having you here for the next four years and hopefully long more after that. Trey, yes, it's sir. awesome to talk to you. Thanks, Trey. Um, yes, we're sir. really excited to see you play this season, and we're grateful for you spending the time with us this morning. Thank thank you guys. That is Trey Brown, your Seahawks rookie, and someone who you can. If you couldn't hear the the size of the fight in that dog when we were talking to him oh, about so how confident. tough he is. Yeah. yeah. He's correcting Love me on the big plays it. I don't remember. That was awesome. Yeah. Loved hearing it. It is Danny and Gallant. We got Michael Bumpus. He's joining us next for Blue 42.